Welcome to the Earth Rights Podcast. I'm Mel. And I'm Pippa. Our podcast is here to show you the deep and crazy and undeniable connection between human rights issues and the climate crisis. Earth Rights is an open space to chat about the challenges we face today. So we host activists, our friends like Kate, who's joining us today, and wonderful professionals to ask about their experiences in living amongst and fighting against these challenges. So um, as I said, today we're here with Kate, Kate Lyashenko. We've interviewed Kate before um, last year about the Ukrainian coal crisis um, and the Donbass region, which is going to also come into today's conversation. Um, But I think we can get get stuck into the episode, um, which today is going to topically and timely be about um, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But we thought it would be really important to actually expand on the relationship between Moscow and Kiev, um, particularly because, of course, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union before 1991. So it's only since 1991, so the last 30 years or so, that Ukraine has been independent along with many other um, post-Soviet Union countries. So that's a huge, not only um, shift in sovereignty, but also in terms of culture and political philosophy and just general population dynamics. Um, I think it's fair to say, and Kate will obviously expand on all of this, but um, tensions are, are always high between Ukraine and Russia because of their geographical location. So they're obviously next to each other. Um, and I think it's also fair to say that given that Russia is no longer the power center and the head of the Soviet Union, it's still sort of longed to maintain some kind of regional control um, of the post-Soviet Union states. Um, and this rears its head in different ways over the last sort of 30 years or so, but it was particularly um, bad when Russia tried to and successfully annexed um, the Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula in 2014, which is in the south of Ukraine. Um, and also it reared its head when Russia sent troops into the Donbass region, which is um, which is on the sort of the border of Russia and Ukraine um, and is a huge, huge region and is an area really rich in coal. And we explored that in the episode last time with Kate because um, she explained a sort of interesting phenomenon that has arisen there where um, separatist movements have um, formed and are aligning with Russia because of the fact that they some people do consider themselves Russian and because of the huge depressive um, nature of the region because it just has had no money from the state to enable it to infrastructurally grow and it's completely reliant on coal which um, is an energy source of course for Russia and is therefore very attractive Um, but we'll return to that but it's it's just important to get a picture that this relationship between Russia and Ukraine hasn't it's an ongoing war between two countries and Kate described this as a frozen conflict as something which neither one is winning and where no movement is being made and perhaps now I guess it seems that actually it's the the tension is really reigniting and um things are getting really serious. Um, I mean, perhaps, I think after the 2014, when the, when Crimea and the Donbass re- regional um, invasions happened, there were some peace agreements signed and 
Ukraine was re-established as a sovereign nation and Russia was put under a lot of um, pressure to stay out, essentially. Um, but I think it's fair to say that Putin still maintains that Ru- that Ukraine is really part a part of Russian civilization, um, not only culturally, but historically too. And I think it, Putin and the Russian nation perhaps think this not just about Ukraine, but about many of the post-Soviet um, sovereign nations that actually so much of their history is intertwined that they see their power uh, as a um, as a continuation of the USSR and the Soviet Union. Um, and now that Ukraine wants to is or is continuing to try uh, and move towards Europe. I mean, I think Kate would say that it's it's very like the population is very divided on that in that way. Um, just as clearly it is in England as well. Like we, our referendum showed a really nice split between people who feel European and people who feel mm-hmm. very national national. Um, but essentially the move, any kind of move or alliance towards Europe is going to frustrate Russia. And I think that is part of what is starting to rear its head again um, at the moment and the the ties that Ukraine is trying to make with NATO. Yeah, which is between a select number of countries and which Russia isn't part of, but is a very Europeanised, Westernised organisation. Um, so here we are in on the 23rd of February with um, many, many Western nations stating their alliance and their support towards Ukraine. Um, But I think we should understand, first of all, from Kate, not only why Russia is interested in Ukraine, she'll probably go into much more detail than I have done, but like why it's important to Putin at this time to really go full throttle. Hello, that's me, Kate, and uh, thank you so much for your introduction because it was uh, quite precise, but um, I just uh, wanted to add to this. Uh, There was uh, some sentence that um, the Ukrainian population is divided uh, in, in in that way that some people want to join European Union and NATO and other don't. Um, that's really not true. Actually, now it is a very consensus, um, consensus appeal to uh, join the European Union and join NATO. And it's actually written down in the constitution that uh, the, the path that Ukraine is going uh, is to join uh all the Western alliances, including NATO and European Union. Um, So actually, in this regard, we kind of have consensus now. Of course, uh, some people would um, prefer maybe that Ukraine is a neutral state. But at the same time, um, it is kind of clear for everyone now that we are... um, yeah, deeply affected uh, by this aggression from the Russian side and that uh, sovereignty of Ukraine can be easily lost. So we cannot really be like neutral, like, I don't know, Switzerland, for example. For these reasons, uh, it is true that like Ukraine is moving to this Western direction since um, actually already many years. But yeah, the biggest move has been done since uh, the Euromaidan revolution since 2014. And um, yeah, I guess you're right. It's really disappointing for Putin, who, um, yeah, who basically never uh, agreed uh, that uh, Russia has lost Cold War, right? Uh, So Cold War didn't really finish. It's, uh, It's changed. And now it's way more like informational, but it's still happening. And because Ukraine is uh, joining the side, not Putin's side, I think uh, it's a big threat to his uh, power and it's a big threat to his uh, yeah, 
support and he's building a lot his uh, propaganda and uh, his image for the electorate and as if he's um, some sort of building uh, alternative to USA and the USA is like the main uh, basically the main um, aggressor and it's um, uh, it's gonna be like if if Ukraine would join, join NATO it would mean that USA is moving towards Russia and um, it is aggression from the USA towards Russia so this is I guess how it looks um, generally for him um, and for your question um, why uh, why right now uh, it's uh, actually very contested and I think nobody really knows. Uh, and I guess that was the whole idea because it, uh, this invasion had to be unexpected, right? Um, but at the same time, I, I guess like he started, like Putin started uh, moving uh, the troops, uh, um, since like Christmas, more or less. And there were no really anything like, any event that would trigger it. Um, actually, like we were not even discussing much the NATO uh, alliance. Like I don't remember in agenda or in press, like that it, it was a very, uh, you know, question of the discussion actually was not. So we really don't know. And uh, there is a discussion ongoing why right now, maybe it is connected to the, um fact that like the panics the panic around pandemic is kind of coming to an end and like things seem to be stable and uh like everybody kind of lost um interest right in this ukrainian russian situation so it was kind of a good moment to um attack because nobody expects i guess that was the the main reason, but of course, nobody knows what is in the head of Putin, actually. So hard to say. I just wanted to ask more of a personal question about, obviously, you're um, currently living in Lisbon, but you have a lot of family and friends who are living in Kiev and also in kind of more rural areas of Ukraine. Um, and kind of there's been a lot of people sort of posting things sort of like saying, claiming that the Western media is over-exaggerating the situation and that the situation in Kiev is calm, people are continuing to go mm -hmm. to work and things like that. And I saw you post something on your own Instagram saying, people are saying everything is normal in Ukraine. Yes, but people have lived with war for years. They've chosen to carry on with their lives, but it's not easy and it's not natural. So from your conversations with your family and your friends, how are they coping with the situation? Obviously, Today, as we're recording this, um, tensions have really, really escalated. Um, mm -hmm. But over the past few weeks, how, is, how has the picture changed and how are your family and friends like coping mm -hmm. with the situation? Uh, yeah, I mean, dynamics changed a bit. I think like two weeks ago, um, I think like right before the um, Olympic Games uh, in Beijing started, we had like that moment of panic a bit, like around my... Um, in my circle but then later like people were peaceful like in peace again and then like again so it's like it's kind of always some sort of um, roller coaster you know and uh, for many it's like yes everything seems normal you can go to like I don't know to a restaurant you can um, I don't know go do shopping and like everything is open everything works and like people are traveling and it really doesn't seem that uh, something is um, wrong, right? Uh, and it's like this for um, many years. So it's, I guess it really depends on the person. But uh, yeah, like uh, some people, I guess they are managing not to show how actually nervous they are or they're nervous at some point in the morning, for example, and in the evening, they're not. Some people are having problems to sleep, but some people maybe are the opposite, right? Like uh, just trying to uh, not read the news and switch off their phones. And 
I really don't know how it's like right now for everybody. I don't think that there is like a mass, like I can say that there is like the whole dynamic of the society uh, because I don't know how everybody obviously feels. But yeah, if you look just at the street and like what people are doing, it looks quite, quite normal and like nothing is happening. I know you said, I think you mentioned to Mel yesterday that sort of your parents and family are like kind of packing bags and preparing in that sense. Mm-hmm. So is that like, um, what what are their plans if mm-hmm. like, the situation gets worse? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a recommendation actually from the Ministry of uh, Internal Affairs. And uh, um, yeah, it has been basically like written in the official websites that everybody has to keep belongings like important belongings like documents and everything uh in like one place and i think it's like very logic thing to do i mean any anyhow like even if there is no threat of war it's kind of important that you know where your passport and like that in some situation you can like easily collect your things right so in the situation when we have such a big threat of course uh, we have to do that but um my parents are not uh, going to um flee anywhere and actually i was talking about uh, with them about it yesterday and like for example my brother he tells ah like yeah we should really think about it like where are we going and like where are we gonna move and uh, my mom was saying that she's like would stay until the end um, because like she and my dad they are doctors so if uh, their need uh, if their help would be needed then they would uh, provide it. And how do they feel about the fact that you're in Lisbon, or how do you feel about the fact that you're yeah currently living in a different country? Um, in one on the one side, yes, it feels like that I'm in the best situation ever because I'm so far from uh, what is happening right now or what might have happened soon. But um, at the same time, yeah, it's like, it feels a bit like I'm a traitor, you know, that I'm like so far away and not really participating in what is happening right now. But at the same time, like, what could I do, right? Like, Mm. um, so yeah it's one one hour I'm feeling all like so good I'm here another hour I'm thinking oh my god like maybe I should check the tickets and actually yesterday I spent the evening with uh, two girls from Ukraine that are traveling uh, in Lisbon in Portugal right now and I mean we were like meeting two days in a row just because I think that they are understanding me best than anybody else and in that sense, I realized that um, I kind of feel a bit alienated because at least like when you're in Ukraine and like you're surrounded by people with the same problems. And because I'm here and most of my friends are international, like they're not from Ukraine, they're from everywhere else, but not from Ukraine. So um, I feel like, you know, nobody is as interested in the situation as me. And like, mm-hmm. I cannot really... Uh, I can feel, of course, a lot of support, but, you know, there is uh, some sort of difference. So I think that uh, like a lot of people that live abroad now and they are even to some extent more nervous because they really they're not there. They don't really see. um, Yeah, like peaceful streets. Yeah, that we uh, we just talked about and they just see the news. And obviously, it makes you even more uh, anxious. Um, Mm. Yeah, thinking about being anxious and and living with that threat. And obviously, we were mentioning earlier that this relationship and this tension is ongoing. And um, you, you spoke to me a little bit yesterday about the fact that even if people are making emergency bags, even if you are, as you say, living in Lisbon, there is this feeling of what can you really do and um you brought up the story or the fable of the boy who cried wolf how do you feel about the threat do you think the threat itself is is as big as the invasion like do you feel 
it's just something that you as a Ukrainian have lived with and um, you're not sure how seriously to take it. Like you were saying, you're not mm -hmm. sure whether to book tickets and just go home. So, yeah, like it's hard to say, like uh, two weeks ago, I was like one of those people who would say, or like, I don't believe at all that there will be any sort of invasion because I think that it's just like some sort of muscle play and some, you know, dirty diplomacy thing uh, but as we see like it seems that the media the western media was right and like the biden was saying legit things and um i don't know because at this uh, point it feels like uh, maybe um i really just have you know like this protection mechani mechanism like uh not to yeah, you know, not to believe that it really will happen because this is how I can still keep calm. Um, but yeah, at the same time, it also seems very illogical, right? That the war would start just because uh, it's so expensive and uh, it's um, such a bad idea for Putin and for Russia, right? Like they would just need to send there so many people and they would die their people like okay it's obviously not important for mr putin who will uh, die in ukraine which people and what will be happening with their families but at the same time there will be like a lot of loss from uh, russian side as well because ukrainian army is way stronger than it used to be in 2014 so it would be a very different um it would be a very different dynamics. It wouldn't be like in 2014 when day after day we were losing towns uh, just because like nobody was prepared because there was a lot of uh, people that were actually in favor of what was happening and in favor of uh, yeah, Russia and joining Russia. But now uh, it's a very, Ukraine is a very different place. Uh, so that's why sometimes I'm thinking like, that's not going to go further than just, you know, the Donbass region. But also, I don't know, because you see that the situation changes so quickly. Hard to predict, really. Obviously, you said how, you know, your parents are doctors, so they feel a sense of duty to stay in Kiev. Mm -hmm. um, or your parents, whereabouts are your parents living? Yeah, they're in Kharkiv. This is actually the city that is on the east. So they live around 60 kilometers away from the border with Russia. Okay. But obviously, you also have a lot of friends who are, of, are the same age as us in their early 20s living mm -hmm. in Kiev. Um, and how do you think the situation is for them as a younger generation and specifically for your male friends? Do you think that they feel kind of prepared to go to war and I think um, la in our last episode we interviewed somebody our friend called Ray who lives in Taiwan and he mm -hmm. talked about the fact that in a similar situation that this is a country that faces the threat of invasion and is a country which China believes belongs to them in a similar way how Russia believes Ukraine belongs to them and um, Ray talked about the fact that they have conscripted military service for young men but it's only three months and so he he wishes it was longer because if there was a war how could he be prepared for, to fight when he's only been in the army for three months so is mm -hmm. there a similar thing in in Ukraine do you think your friends you know would would want to fight and would they feel prepared to do so if they had to so yeah like I didn't actually talk uh, exactly about this with my friends just because I actually don't know why like I mean this couple of days uh, I'm just talking with my mom to be honest and um, yeah I, I cannot say that like I'm all the time uh, communicating with uh, my friends just because you know like I'm away very far away so the dynamics of our um friendship are different right right now like since I moved um so I didn't really ask them but that's actually what I would do probably after the podcast just to know but um actually like what I can see is that of course like a lot of uh, young men are definitely very scared and definitely something that they don't want to do. But at the same time, we have such um, such a big level of hate right now towards Russia, obviously. 
So um, I even saw some images that people like men are queuing uh, for the, um, I don't really know how it's called, but like these institutions, right, that uh, that collect people for um, mobilization. Um, so, yeah, I guess like there are definitely people that are like very determined and that really don't want to be aside. Uh, but it's a very hard moral situation, I guess, for many, because on one side uh, you're very scared, on another side you don't want to be, um, yeah, to surrender and to be one of, uh, uh, I don't know, traitors, kind of, so. Yeah, yeah, and I guess... Um it's really hard to know how prepared one should be. Like you're against Russia, any powerhouse, any huge nation is, it's going to be really scary. And I think that that is the case for any, any war, any, any preparation for war. I mean, it just echoes um, the situation before World War One and World War Two. There's always going to be that propaganda around where people are keeping the morale of their own soldiers and their own nation up by saying that we'll be fine everything's going to be all right and and that Mm -hmm. also sends a message to the opposing side because if you're going into war you have to like you have to be confident even if you feel otherwise that it's not worth it and you and and clearly you think that a lot of people or most lots of young men think it's worth it to fight for maintaining your sovereignty and leading on from that you mentioned uh, about the the change in in mindset since 2014 when um i'm going to pronounce it incorrectly but the the most recent revolution happened in ukraine and the the shifts in the donbass region because the donbass region which is where the huge coal basin is which I think in the last episode you said it was about 30, the size of 30 Londons, so absolutely huge. Um, but, of course, there there have been separatist root movements um, leaning towards Russian alliance and, and being with Russia once again. So I just wondered how that is now playing into um, this invasion and whether you think people from that region have also changed their mindset or oh, not 30 londons 300 londons oh Ukraine my gosh, okay. <laughs> so when we are talking about one third of ukraine we are talking about like <laughs> germany basically you know like it's a it's it's a very big state so it's a very big area and uh um and yes, uh, absolutely, that uh, the population um, there has changed because, like, look, so since 2014, uh, Russia was giving passports to people who uh, live there. Yeah, so you could arrive to Moscow and say, okay, I'm from Donbass and I want the passport and they would give it to you. So actually a lot, a lot of uh, um, young people and yeah, generally people who wanted to move to Russia, they actually did that. So there are already less um, supporters, right, of Russian invasion because they are already in Russia. Uh, then there were, um, I guess, one million and a half uh, since 2014 moved inside of Ukraine. Yeah, we had uh, refugees as well. Yeah, you, like Ukrainian in- refugees. And they are all now living in other cities. In my city, for example, there are a lot. And in Kiev, obviously, everywhere, everywhere, it's a a huge part of population who wanted to be together with Ukraine and um, who were not separatists. They they are just not there. And there is the rest, um, some other people who stayed there probably um, they are either connected to the separatist terrorists, uh, they are connected to Russia, and of course this is a big threat for um, our uh, military troops because, like, even right now, uh, these people are used to uh, uh, for some um, provocations, right? Um, 
So, for example, there would be some explosion and um, the Russian media would say it was explosion from by Ukrainian uh, military troops, but it would be actually these terrorists and people who support them. And we don't really know how many of them are there because, of course, there is no like census or something. Uh, we we cannot measure. But also there are people that are very uh, patriotic um, living there. Uh, these are people who just stay there because they have a very, um, they really like just want to stay there and they want to protect their land. And I'm not talking about like, uh, like military troops. I'm talking about like people that actually stay there. They're Ukrainian speaking and they're, they're very patriotic and, uh, yeah, they are very, um, yeah, for sure they would fight just until the end because if they stayed there for this long eight years, uh, they would stay there forever and they would fight until the last uh, yeah, drop of blood. So um, it's it's very, it really changed since 2014 because at that moment, um, a lot of people were actually not sure what is happening and they uh, were not sure if they are supporting the new government um, in Kiev. Um, now, I think that despite the fact that we um, cannot really measure, uh, you know, the, um, the different groups, but anyhow, people made their decisions, right? And uh, that uh, changes a lot um, in all these dynamics. Yeah. yeah. And connected with that... Well, one one thing that I was wondering, you know, so you you know, you mentioned about the that is on the border with Russia. Does that mean that that's an area where Russian troops can just sort of infiltrate quite easily? I mean, Russian troops already invaded, right? Uh, because uh, yesterday, um, Putin actually um, acknowledged uh, these uh, two republics: Luhansk Republic and Donetsk Republic. So now um, normal military troops of Russia are in Donbass. I don't know if that was your question, but they're there. I mean, they have been there before, but yeah. before they were saying, oh, we are not, we are not there. It's, it's just the separatists who really want to join uh, our country. But okay. now they directly, he directly said that, that uh, we acknowledge these republics and um right after that uh, the regular army of russia actually moved inside of ukrainian sovereign territory um mm. so now they locate there yeah link with the uk and europe um which we can maybe come on to a bit more with our the economic sanctions that us and the US have administered but um there's a huge gas pipeline that runs from Russia to Europe mm-hmm. which i think is a huge controversy around this invasion isn't it and it's being used in a diplomatic sense to bar- start trying to bargain with various countries and um and i just wondered what how it looks to Ukraine and why why this gas pipeline is such a matter of controversy. Uh, so yeah, actually, um, Ukraine has been always this transit um, country uh, for the gas gas um, export from Russia to European Union, and um, actually, Russia had to pay huge fees uh, to Ukraine for you know providing. Uh, basically that service uh, and now yeah since 2014 um obviously we couldn't agree anymore on that that we would uh, help russia get gain so much money from european union by the gas export so uh, they actually um decided to build this Nord Stream 2, which is a pipeline running 760 miles from Russia to Germany under the Baltic Sea. Uh, So it was like a huge investment over, I don't even know, $2 billion, I guess. It was uh, the cost 
uh, of this construction uh, and um, from the very beginning uh, we were realizing that like if um, you, yeah European Union would agree on that it would be basically meaning that they don't care about Ukraine at all uh, right because they're like yeah okay uh, here are your sanctions but we will be still buying your gas right and paying a lot a lot of millions uh every year so that you can use these millions to uh you know to make russian army stronger and later to invade ukraine so this is how it uh, actually looks like right and uh angela merkel she um yeah like i like her as a politician and i really um respect women in politics generally uh, but uh, she didn't seem like it was a problem for her, right, to still keep buying gas. And uh, just yesterday, Olaf Scholz, who is the new uh, chancellor of Germany, uh, he said that uh, since yesterday Russia openly invaded Ukraine uh, with their regular army, uh, Nord Stream 2 will be uh, stopped, the implementation uh, and regulatory uh, approval um are going to be stopped uh, which is actually um a very good sign that finally um european union acknowledges that uh, ukraine is in threat and that it's not all jokes and uh that they cannot just you know still be in any kind of relationship with russia um anymore so that, that's why it was a really positive news. Like, so yesterday was kind of bad news, but also good news because it means that uh, at least um, Russia would not export gas to European Union. So they will have a huge loss. Um, at the same time, it also means that, yeah, it, it also means uh, <laughs> that you, you, US will be gaining a lot because uh, US is uh, also a huge exporter of gas and uh, there they will be able to continue exporting to European Union and gain a ton of money. <laughs> so I don't really know, like, it's very ambiguous. That's true, like this whole thing. But at least what uh, is pleasant about Olaf's decision is that Russia won't be able to profit uh, on Nord Stream anymore and that they lost uh, $2 billion, which is very, very pleasant to hear <laughs> like obviously the uk has recently i think yesterday announced a series of economic sanctions the eu has also issued sanctions and so has the us um but in the uk specifically there's already been a lot of controversy about you know the level of these sanctions with certain individuals not being sanctioned because mm -hmm. they kind of have a high influence in the UK economy, the UK political system and all things like that. And I think that's been a level of controversy for a number of years is just quite how much we were letting these sort of Russian oligarchs influence our housing market, our mm -hmm. being politicians and everything is definitely been worrying. But it's like now reached a point where this has been allowed to happen. And now it's like, OK, well, we want to put sanctions on Russia, but we don't want to offend our allies in Russia so mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that in terms of like the UK and the EU's position with economic sanctions oh yeah um well it's hard to say the problem is that like also I think it's very hard to um really say who has to do like I mean obviously like all these oligarchs are somehow connected with uh, Putin but also how can you uh know exactly that they have some um role in this decision making right so I, I would be like for me it's always a good uh, thing when there are sanctions but I also understand that our uh, world is very globalized and very connected especially uh, Europe uh, and and it's very, um, yeah, it's very hard to say, like, should we sanction every Russian person or like, should we sanction, uh, like, put sanctions on people that are, uh, I don't know, 
maybe over 30 years old. So, or, or like, how are we gonna, you know, kind of decide who has to be under sanctions and who, who is not. And yeah, like, I don't really know exactly like, um, you know, politics uh, around sanctions that well in uh, UK, in the UK, because, um, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm more monitoring the situation in Ukraine. Uh, but, um, yeah, I would only hope that there will be more sanctions, even though I understand that for uh, the UK and for other European countries, it's disadvantages uh, in terms of, um, yeah, economy and that's that's why it can be quite frustrating suddenly it seems that we care and but we're not caring enough do we uh, do we care because we really are allied with ukraine and would do anything to stop putin or are we scared of putin and are protective of our gas and oil supplies which i think just on a really basic level links with the basis of the podcast um of earth rights because we're trying to highlight and show the connection between um, environmental issues and climate change and human rights. And of course, like Ukraine's right to self-determine and people's right to lives if, is put into um, jeopardy because of the fact that energy and gas is at stake. Um, and that just seems like hideously hypocritical when all of these nations particularly in Europe and the in the West have um, put themselves forward to um, be part of agreements throughout the world to start bringing down their greenhouse gas emissions and mm -hmm. yet that's not happening quickly enough and isn't happening at such a degree that people are win it, willing to when human rights are at stake Absolutely. to actually step up and um, make a better and fairer balance between those two competing um competing systems competing structures competing um fields and what was i going to say about that well i guess i guess the one thing that you the uk is doing to prepare which i think is part of the sort of the overall ukrainian strategy because as you said, like Ukraine is now really heading towards wanting to be part of Europe and the EU, etc. But obviously, it's not yet. And so therefore, it's, it's really got to form alliances and um, ties in, in smaller ways and immediately in order to feel protected, um, naturally. And so there is a, a three way alliance between Ukraine, Poland and the UK, mm -hmm. um, which I think is definitely a positive um, support network for Ukraine and is quite typical of um, Ukraine's strategy, as I understand, because it's it's trying to gather any any friendship that it can against Russia, knowing yeah. knowing what it's knowing what it's facing. But it, it did as soon as um, we looked at that yesterday, Kate, it like immediately made me think of the. Anglo-Polish agreement that happened back before World War Two, and that mm -hmm. there was a different alliance against Germany, um, mm -hmm. and just how like nations can quickly come together to support one another, um, and in a way like as as we do with friends, that that's a really that is a really important and immediate way that we can help each other. So perhaps that's like one positive um yeah it's um this like whole situation really shows well it's a very good illustration of how human rights are connected to environmental issues and you know if like if we would uh, if european union countries and generally like european countries would transition uh would have this transition to you know to move away from gas faster in like more you know it would be more intensive work done then there wouldn't be this situation right at all probably because what else can russia use to blackmail what what uh, other you know like pressure points uh does it have nothing except of gas like if we are talking yeah if we simplify it so yeah like that's 
that's a very good illustration and just wanted to add that yeah definitely I think it is it does highlight like which is what Mel was kind of saying like like in every episode even if we haven't explicitly pointed out the connection between human rights and the environment I think it's just that realization that in so many different ways the two are fundamentally connected um but as kind of talking about you know the positives in the sense that it does seem like the west the west the us the uk and europe is kind of showing its support for ukraine in various different ways what can like we as individuals do do you think like obviously you talked about you know there is a sense of helplessness and our powers are limited but even just in sort of our communication with friends and we talked on instagram the other day about the importance of language when we're talking about ukraine and russia so is there anything that you would like to see your kind of your friends or people listening to the podcast do to actually just express support oh yes so i mean actually i think what is really important that like you know people are like keep being interested in this and like um that they're not spreading misinformation and like they're checking that the news are legit uh because actually what really um makes it worse is uh, panic uh you know and like especially when you see um spread of some uh yeah misinformation that's uh, that feels very awkward and like you don't feel good you know about it when you when you when you see something like this so yeah we just like ask no one to spread misinformation but you know still be interested in the issue and um one big thing that um anyone can do there is uh uh, some non-profit organizations, for example, uh, Razum for Ukraine, which means Together for Ukraine, uh, where people could donate money uh, that would be used uh, for um, for army and for some humanitarian uh, help, for uh, medical aid, and um, yeah, many other important things uh, that. Uh, need financing now obviously the government is uh, now financing these fears a lot but anyhow like even one or two more euros they actually matter and um, I, I think that this is something quite easy to do but which has a big impact on you know lives on saving lives so that would be my um yeah, proposal, my advice. Um, and I don't know what else, actually, because I'm I'm asking myself, like, what, what I can do. Like, there is not so many things. We just have to wait, keep calm and monitor the situation. Okay. I, Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Imparting your wisdom and yeah. your opinions. Thank you so much. I was, like... I don't know, it's really important for me, you know, to talk about it. And um, I'm glad that I have such nice company to discuss it. Uh, so thank you very much. And yeah, I hope, uh, yeah, it, like if some of the listeners would want to like contact me and like ask some more questions or maybe when I was saying something, I mean, like, again, I have to say that like I'm not a, a huge uh, specialist in international relations or you know, like I'm still just like a master student uh, in sociology. So like if I was saying something wrong, like also just like let me know because I also don't want to be the one who spreads misinformation, obviously. So yeah, like any comments, I would be glad to see them and glad to communicate uh, um, in this regard. We're just chiming in to remind you that you've been listening to the Earth Rights Podcast, the podcast and platform which focuses on the connection between human rights and environmental issues. Uh, I don't know about you, Mel, but I just think that was such an inspiring conversation. Like I think I feel so thankful to Kate for kind of sharing and talking to us about a topic which I feel like must be so emotionally exhausting and draining for her. But yeah. I also feel really like thankful to be able to have a space to talk about it with her because it also must be difficult 
to be living in Lisbon, but reading the news and kind of feeling in two different worlds. So hopefully it's like creating that space for these discussions. Um, but yeah, Kate's just so knowledgeable on so many different subjects and it's always such a pleasure to kind of catch Speak. up with her. Totally. Also, I think she's just very perceptive. And um, I think a lot of what we spoke about relates to so much of like this international political system that we have find ourselves in. And as we were um, all touching on, um, I think the fact that there's this catch 22 constantly of, okay, everyone needs energy in the world and everyone therefore is using energy, gas, coal, electricity. Um, well, obviously it creates into electricity as a political tool um, and just how jeopardizing that is to human rights. And like, you could really feel that with Kate. You could really see that she and hear that she was in two minds about what to do for her friends and her family and 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 that she it sounded like Ukraine really did know what it what it wants now and it wants to move to the west just in a similar way to how Kate has Kate's moved west and further west um in her early um 20s and it just signifies that sort of cultural shift in Ukrainians and I think like it's really nice to acknowledge that and acknowledge that as against the Russian invasion mm, absolutely like I think yeah so much has changed since 2014 and to acknowledge that and acknowledge the sort of um the shifts in perceptions that have happened um and yeah Kate is kind of an amazing spokesperson of those changes and represents kind of Ukraine as a international country that represents so many different cultures it's no longer just an, an ex-soviet state it's in itself a beautiful country with so much history and culture and art surrounding it and kate represents that in so many different ways thank you so much for listening to this episode um, this podcast is produced research hosted and adored by me pippa and me Mel our new 2022 music was produced by our lovely friend Harry Proctor so thank you very much please follow and subscribe Earthrights on Spotify Apple Acast or wherever on earth you listen to us um, we also have a website earthrights.co.uk that you can check out um, we'd really love to promote Earthrights through offline and tangible channels so please keep sharing our stories such as the ones that we explore today with Kate through word of mouth and keep looking out for posters and leaflets and basically just keep the conversation going. Um, but if you are an online person then please follow Earthrights on Instagram Earthrights underscore. So yeah we look forward to hearing you and yeah definitely get in touch if you have any questions for us or Kate. Lots of love. See you soon. Bye.